Section 26 Notes from Echoes of the Forest by William Edgar Brown Read for LibriVox.org by Sandra Appendix 1 Notes to American Indian Legends Part 1 Longfellow's Hiawatha The beautiful Indian poem, The Song of Hiawatha, written by Longfellow, and one of his master poems, probably the one that has as much to do with making him famous as any he's written, is worthy of notice, for some critics say that had he written this poem alone, it would have made him famous. The poem is worthy of all the praise and favorable criticism it has received, and the rhythm and meter of the Finnish, Kalevala, the national poem of the Finnish people, being so well adapted to the Indian legends, gives it almost the merit of originality. The spirit of the poem is in harmony with the spirit of the legends embodied in it, and from the standpoint of spirit or romance it is correct. From the standpoint of the letter, however, it is far from being correct, and may rightfully be subjected to much adverse criticism, but the poem should be estimated from the former standpoint. Indian scholars who were familiar with their most common legends have severely criticized the poem from the standpoint of technicality. For example, I once heard an Indian minister say that Longfellow did not know what he was doing when he wrote Hiawatha. For, said he, everybody knows that the Chippewa character whom Longfellow named Hiawatha is not Hiawatha at all, but Nana Bojo, the Ottawa Hiawatha. Quote, Doubtless, Nana Bojo was a great chieftain with supernatural powers. He performed many marvelous feats, and a number of great natural wonders of the country are ascribed to his ingenuity. Nevertheless, to the Algonquin tribes generally, Nana Bojo was a ludicrous character. In many of his pranks he acted the part of a clown. Most of his episodes were of a humorous character in, in Indian mythology. While ascribing to him unheard of and wonderful abilities, the Indians ridiculed Nana Bojo and laughed at all his accomplishments. He must not be confused with the Gichi Manitou, or Great Spirit, of whom the Indians never spoke, except with reverence and great respect. Nana Bojo was regarded as a buffoon. End quote. The legend of Hiawatha, which Longfellow uses in his song of Hiawatha, is in reality not a Chippewa legend at all, nor can it be found among any of the Algonquin tribes, but it is without question an Iroquois legend and can be found in W. W. Canfield's Legends of the Iroquois. To this book and legend I refer the readers of this criticism. I refrain from putting into poetic form this beautiful legend which has had such a great mission in the world, Neither will I make a criticism of the literary merit of the poem. It has fulfilled a great mission, and we are greatly indebted to the author for producing it. It is for the benefit of those who have a sacred regard for the genuineness, authenticity, and correct statement of these legends as the Indians had themselves, and as many of the writers of Indian legends and traditions have had, that I write as I am now doing. To take a distinctively Iroquois character and make of him a distinctively Chippewa character and bring him over into another part of the country where he had never been represented to have been was rather a venturesome thing to do. Thus some of the great critics of the country claiming to know and heartily endorsing the poem as correct and authoritative must have amused Longfellow many times to think how little they knew about it. For the poet knew very well what he was doing, and all these various changes which he made, he justified himself in doing by taking the liberty of poetic license, and by making the end justify the means. 
For the correctness of this criticism, I refer readers to the author before referred to, the chapter on Hiawatha, pages 137 to 148, and John C. Wright's Legends of the Crooked Tree, page 29. Nana Bocho, the Ottawa Hiawatha, a passage of which I have quoted in this article, and which may be distinguished from my own language by the use of quotation marks. The Creed of the Iroquois Note, contained in the chapter entitled The Happy Hunting Grounds under the Head of Folklore in W. W. Canfield's Volume. End Note It is very difficult to define the Creed of the Iroquois, for it is intermingled with many curious superstitions of every kind, so that it cannot be stated as doctrines of other religious peoples. They had no special teachers of religion, and could add as many superstitions as the mind could conceive to his own religious belief. Their religion saw God as a great and loving spirit, whose extended arms bore up and encircled the universe. They believed that this great spirit created all objects, both animate and inanimate, upon the earth, that he smiled upon his people in sunshine and showers, and frowned upon them in fierce storms and whirlwinds. He peopled the air with millions of embodied spirits, some of which were evil, and unless propitiated, caused pain, sickness, trouble, and death. Others were good spirits, and aided the hunter in his chase, the lover in his suit, and brought male offspring to the mother's arms. Finally, he had prepared for them a happy hunting ground where every one should go after death. Their beautiful birds would make resonant the hills and valleys with their enchanting songs. The Great Spirit had covered that vast and magnificent country with plants and forests and limpid streams in which and over which would sport the red deer, bears, buffaloes, and all animals and fishes useful for food and clothing. The good Indian could there reside forever with his wives and papooses, climbing the rugged hills without weariness, sporting in the rivers and lakes that never failed to supply an abundance of fish, always returning from the chase laden with trophies of his skill. But the bad Indian would return from the chase empty-handed. He would lose his way and wander in the labyrinth of beautiful paths that led him beside the fields of growing maize, which disappeared when he attempted to pluck the glistening ears. Then his more fortunate brothers would take pity on him and lead him to his home, and his punishment would be the chagrin he would feel when, of necessity, he was compelled to partake of his brother's bounty. In the beginning, the red man dwelt with the great spirit in this delightful country. But they were so boisterous and full of play that the great spirit could get no rest on account of their noise. Besides this, there were no evil spirits or dangers there, and they could not learn to be brave and courageous unless they were situated where they came in contact with opposition and trouble. So the great spirit made a large basket in which he placed the red men, carefully covering them, so they could not see the trail by which he took them from his home. He brought them to the earth, and left them with the promise that, when they had acquired bravery and circumspection, they could again be carried to him, and then dwell, quote, for so many moons that all the needles on the greatest pine tree would not tell them all, end quote. The Iroquois held sacred no day on which to perform particular religious exercises, but they had several annual festivals which were observed with regularity for ages, and which are in a measure celebrated by the so-called pagans among the Senecas, Onondagas, and Tuscaroras at the present time. One of their most important feasts was the Maple Dawn. Previous to this festival, the people would meet in the council chamber and make confession of their sins 
and thanked the Creator for tempering the wind so that the sap would flow. The confession of their misdeeds did not relieve them of the consequences of the deeds themselves, but in a measure it tempered the punishment. The moral code may be briefly summed up as follows. It was a sin to neglect the old in any manner, or refuse to share with them the fruits of the chase or the products of the fields, and it was especially sinful to neglect or disregard aged or infirm parents, to speak in derision or slightingly of any one who might be lame, blind, idiot, insane, crippled, or in any manner unfortunate in any degree, or to refuse them aid or shelter was disgraceful. It was wicked to refuse to share food or shelter with anyone who might apply for either, or to fail to care for the sick and for orphan children or widows, to break any treaty or agreement made at the council fire when the peace pipe had been smoked, or after the parties making the treaty had taken food together, was ignominious, to violate the chastity of any woman, to kill animals for any other purpose than for food or covering, and for the protection of growing crops or human life, was sinful. It was wrong to tell a falsehood, even though it might be of the most innocent character, to show cowardice in meeting any kind of danger, or to shrink from exposure, pain, suffering, sickness, or death, was disgraceful. To take human life, unless the person killed was a member of a tribe with which the Iroquois were at war, was wrong. There were no punishments prescribed for breaking any of these or other recognized laws, but the person offending by the commission of the greater sins was by common consent and custom shunned, scorned, shamed, neglected, pointed out, and ostracized from all connection whatever with his tribe and relatives. This generally resulted in the culprit's suicide, which was looked upon as a very brave act, and was full reparation for the wrongs committed. Soon after the maple dawn came the planting festival. Next came the green corn festival. Then came the harvest festival. These festivals were all festivals of thanksgiving, very much like the services on the Christian Thanksgiving Day. The ways were very similar. The prayer of the Hope Festival was given when the first green shoots of the corn appeared. At this time they circled round the glowing fires and called upon the Great Spirit to protect the seeds. The prayer of this festival is as follows. Thy children thank thee for the life thou hast given the dead seeds. Give us a good season that our crops may be plentiful. Continue to listen for the smoke that rises. Preserve our old men among us and protect the young. Help us to celebrate this festival as did our fathers. Sometime during the winter was held the White Dance. This, however, was not of so ancient an origin as the other festivals and was probably a superstition promulgated by some of the great medium men within the last 250 years. Evil spirits that might have been driven into the houses of the Indians by the cold were induced by various ceremonies to enter the body of a white dog or grey fox that walked from house to house for that purpose. Then, with due ceremony, the animal was killed and the bad spirits cremated with the body, the jaws having been tied together so that the spirits could not escape through its mouth into which they had entered. The Indians had numerous other ceremonial dances and any number of social dances, more than any other race of people, for they had few other amusements, but those enumerated above were the only strictly religious festivals. These were, in every sense, reverential, devotional, and inspired by faith. 
the red men believed that if they observed them according to ancient customs and usages, it would appease the great spirit, and that he would eventually take them all to the happy hunting grounds. While they clearly believed in an immortal life and in the resurrection of the body, they had no belief whatever in the infliction of future punishment other than that experienced by the hunter whose arrows could not procure the game he coveted and trailed in the land where game abounded forever. Quote, had these people, possessing as they most certainly did a religion combining so many of the elements of the Christian religion, been discovered by any one of the enlightened nations of the present day instead of the bigots of four hundred years ago, their history would not have been written with so many sad scenes for illustrations. End quote. About the year 1800, a new religion was revealed to the members of the Iroquois then residing in New York State. And as it is what is now known as the pagan belief, it may be well to describe it briefly. It was introduced by Iannosigo, Handsome Lake, who was born near the site of the village of Avon, New York, in 1735, and died in 1815 at Onondaga while on a pastoral visit to that nation. His life had been spent mainly in dissipation, but in his old age he claimed to have received a wonderful revelation and succeeded in making the Iroquois believe him. Handsome Lake journeyed from tribe to tribe and taught the new faith till his death fifteen years after. He was regarded as a second Hiawatha and exerted a great influence over the Iroquois. After his death, other teachers took his place and continued to back the new faith. Handsome Lake was a half-brother of Cornplanter and Black Snake. They all had the same father, a white trader by the name of Abil. The principal points of his creed are as follows. His first efforts were directed towards the eradication of intemperance, and here entered the first threat of future punishment in the creed of the Iroquois. A drunkard was promised boiling hot liquor, which he must drink in great quantities. When he had drunk until he could hold no more, streams of fire would issue from his mouth, and he would be commanded to sing, as he had done on earth after drinking firewater. Husbands and wives who had been quarrelsome on earth were to be compelled to rage at each other till their eyes and tongues ran out so far they could neither see nor speak. A wife-beater would be repeatedly led before a red-hot statue which he would be told to strike as he struck his wife upon earth, and when he struck, sparks would fly from the image and burn his arm to the bone. Lazy people were compelled to till cornfields in a blazing sun, and as fast as the weeds were struck down, they would again spring up with renewed luxuriance. Those who sold the lands of their people to the whites were assigned the task of removing a never-diminishing pile of sand one grain at a time over a vast distance. These are but samples of the terrible punishments to be dealt out to evildoers at all times. At the same time, he taught that rewards would be freely bestowed to those who kept the laws laid down by the Great Spirit, and into these laws, as revealed by Handsome Lake with many fanciful and poetical imaginings that pleased the simple people to whom he taught, he wrote the Ten Commandments. He taught morality, temperance, patience, forbearance, charity, forgiveness, and all the cardinal virtues. Handsome Lake implicitly believed that the vision he described was a direct visitation from the Creator, and he also believed that in his teachings he was giving voice to the wishes of the Creator. 
it may be truthfully stated that few Iroquois Indians have at present any well-grounded religious belief, yet if they were not fearful that it would cause them to be subjected to further legal restrictions, they would be well pleased to return once more to the free enjoyment of the teaching of Handsome Lake. End of section 26. This recording is in the public domain.